From loosening gun restrictions, to overturning Roe v. Wade, to severely threatening our Miranda rights, the Supreme Court has had a busy summer dismantling decades-old legal precedent. And the news around these decisions can be a lot to process. Crooked Media's Strict Scrutiny is a podcast that covers the United States Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. Each week, co-hosts and law professors Leah Littman, Kate Shaw, and Melissa Murray, personal heroes of mine, break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country. As we gear up for midterm elections, it's more important than ever to understand the repercussions of these SCOTUS decisions and what we can do to fight back this November. Listen to new episodes of Strict Scrutiny every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Kelly. And I'm Jamia Wilson. And this is Ordinary Equality. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. So we are getting, dare I say it, close to election season. Uh. (laughs) Which means we will be hearing a lot of people, a lot of politicians, coming out and saying, vote, vote, vote. But at the top of a lot of voters' minds is abortion. This week, we're talking about the congressional response to the fall of Roe. And I know what you might be thinking, which is, what response? (laughs) Yeah, it's a common refrain. I think especially for people in our line of work, you know, abortion people, for us, it's felt like we've been screaming about threats to abortion access for years, if not decades, and the people in power just uh, ignore us. They put their fingers in their ears, la, 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 and then row falls, and suddenly it's a scramble, and they're like, vote, elect us. And I can see how people aren't motivated to vote when it can feel like nothing ever gets done. It's really sad to me when I think about how so many of us have the receipts (laughs) to show how much we said about the sky falling when there was a time when we could have had a lot of time and space to address this from a proactive versus a reactive stance. And yet here we are. And it, it is one of those things where I am feeling a deep sadness because it is one of those places where I do feel that the lack of palpable outreach um, that is coming from some of the people who we've elected to represent us is painful, that there's not a sense of deep 
empathy that comes from a place of people really not understanding in their cells and in their bones what is really at stake for those of us who could be criminalized for making decisions about our own bodies, who could be criminalized for helping people we care about make dignified decisions that are personal. And some of the people saying, elect us and we'll save you. It's like, well, you've been in office for 30 years. Like you could have saved us already. Like what have you been doing this whole time? Uh, So yeah, I feel people's frustration. I do too. And I think what's hard about the conversation is as usual in our society, that the binary nature of the conversation is really a problem. That the people who are hearing the righteous outreach from folks who are saying, okay, we need something other than vote um, as the message for what we need to do right now because we feel that we did vote and we're still where we are. Um, Instead of seeing that as a threat to think of it as an opportunity to mobilize people um, on the other things we need to do to deepen the impact of that voter, vote for whom, changes the change the faces of who we're voting for, you know, all of that. And I feel that their lack of accountability is really the thing that drives people to not want to have that conversation, um, to say yes, that the people who are concerned aren't saying, oh, I'm not going to vote. They're saying, I want to see accountability to the people who, to us, the people who are affected by these retrograde laws and accountability from the people who we have chosen to work on our behalf. And I think that that needs to be discussed more. What does accountability look like? Exactly. And today we're going to pull back the curtain on what accountability in Congress can actually look like. This episode is a joint endeavor with another WMN podcast, Women Belong in the House. That show's host is a familiar voice on Ordinary Equality because she's our executive producer, Jenny Kaplan. And Jenny has kind of an in with Congress. Good morning. Good morning, Jenny. How's it going? Everything's great. Her mom, Representative Kathy Manning. Jenny and her mom are going to take us behind the scenes and show us what it takes to engineer a congressional response. So Representative Manning is a freshman. This is her first term in office. And people generally assume that freshmen in Congress, like freshmen in high school, don't have a whole lot of power. But Representative Manning serves North Carolina's 6th district. It's metropolitan. It's relatively liberal. In a lot of ways, it represents what North Carolina could be, which is exciting for me because North Carolina is one of my home states. And North Carolina is actually becoming something of a Southern haven for people who need abortions, which shocks me a little bit, but I'm into it. (laughs) When Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's opinion was leaked back in May, Representative Manning saw his language as a dog whistle. There were clear signs that the Supreme Court was going after more than just abortion. So she called her team into her office. And we said, we've got to, we're always playing defense. We we need to get ahead of some of these decisions. It's time for us to start enacting laws that would protect some of these rights and not wait for the Supreme Court to overrule prior cases and put these rights at risk. They decided to put together a resolution. I don't want to get too bogged down um, in the details, but really quickly, what's the difference between a resolution and a bill? 
A resolution is something that expresses the sense of Congress. It basically announces to the world, this is how the Congress of the United States feels about this issue. It doesn't have the impact of law. A bill is something that actually can be enacted into law. And a bill goes from the House to the Senate, or it can start in the Senate, go from the Senate to the House. But if it's passed by both, um, both bodies, it then could go to the president to be signed into law. I had told everybody that when the opinion was issued, if it was as bad as we expected it would be, we would bring this bill, this resolution, we would turn it into a bill. So that's exactly what we did. After the Dobbs opinion was issued, we turned our resolution into a bill. The Dobbs decision came down on June 24th, and it was worse than Representative Manning and her team had suspected it would be. It wasn't actually the Dobbs opinion itself, but the, the concurring opinion of Justice Clarence Thomas is what I think was the most alarming. Clarence Thomas said that it was time to revisit other decisions that were based on the right to privacy. And he named three of the decisions. One was the decision that recognized the right to gay marriage, to marriage equality, which is the Ogerbefeld, if I'm saying that correctly, decision. And one was Griswold, which was the 1965 case that recognized the right of married couples to use contraception. Because before 1965, there were actually laws on the books of certain states prohibiting people from using birth control. There was a a case a couple years later, Eisenstadt, that recognized the right to use birth control for unmarried people. And then the Casey uh, case, I believe it was, recognized the right for minors to use birth control. So many of us in Congress saw his very explicit statement as a, as a warning bell that we needed to take a look at what we could do to protect those rights. And I believe that there were others, extremists, who saw his statements in the opinion as being a rallying cry that we've got a justice on our side, let's go for it, try to bring those cases that are going to allow them to overturn the the prior case law. Because one thing that you have to understand is the Supreme Court doesn't have the right to just go back and overturn opinions. They have to wait until a relevant case is brought to the Supreme Court. And if they accept that case, that gives them the opportunity to overturn a precedent. In the majority opinion, Justice Alito had said his ruling only applied to abortion. Okay. But Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett had said during their confirmations that they wouldn't overturn Roe. These people are on the record as being big liars. So, you know, reassurance from the Supreme Court at this point doesn't really mean a whole lot. Not to mention the fact that Justice Thomas's opinion explicitly called out other decisions that had been made using the argument for privacy. Right. So Representative Manning turned to codifying the right to contraception. Yikes. Codifying is a term you've probably heard a lot of recently. If it's codified into law, does that mean that they can't introduce, they can't hear a new case and then overturn that previous decision if it's been codified into law? That's the theory. And once it is the law of the land, that's the law that should prevail. Doesn't mean that somebody's not going to bring a case somewhere to try to challenge that law. But if the law is clear and there are no ways to to create exceptions, hopefully the Supreme Court would not agree to review whatever case is brought. 
I wonder what you say to people who also suggest that this legislation is coming a little too late, that it's in reaction to this leak when these rights should have been protected before. What's What do you say to those people? It's important for Congress to prioritize laws that are essential to be enacted at that moment in time. And there's so many issues that we deal with in Congress that are really important. But I think up until the Dobbs case, there may have been reason to be concerned about restrictions on birth control in different states. But we always thought we could we could depend on the Griswold case to protect the right to use birth control. But as we now know, we can't depend on these cases. So Representative Manning and her office started strategizing. And I have a particularly wonderful legislative assistant. Her name is Ashley Emery, and she has a background in this area. In fact, I think she, I believe she told me that she did her master's thesis on the assault on on women's reproductive rights. So uh, I'm going to give Ashley credit for coming up with the idea that we ought to draft a bill to protect women's reproductive rights. Can I just jump in here as a former congressional staffer to say that members almost never publicly give credit to their staffers? That is basically unheard of. Staffers are like invisible elves. Their work is very rarely acknowledged. So Representative Manning is a class act for acknowledging Ashley's hard work. She went to the Committee of Jurisdiction, which is the Energy and Commerce Committee, and worked with their staff on how we could draft a bill that the committee would be excited to put on the House floor. We had been working with a lot of the national women's rights groups for quite some time, with Planned Parenthood, with NARAL, with the National Women's Law Center, And she consulted with each of these groups to make sure that the bill that we drafted would be comprehensive, would cover all forms of FDA-approved acceptable birth control, and also would create a right not only for individuals to obtain and use contraception, but also for healthcare providers to prescribe or provide their patients with contraception, because you have to have both if you're going to have a bill that's effective. So we, we drafted it, I looked at it, we decided it was good to go, and then she printed up descriptions of the bill, which I took to the House floor. So when we vote on bills, particularly if we have a long series of votes, you'll see members of Congress walking around talking to other members, either handing a, a sheet of paper or what we call floor cards. They're more like large index cards you can put in your your coat pocket or your purse that has a description of the bill. It usually has the title, who's leading it. So members share their bill descriptions with other members so that they can say, this is a great bill. This is what it's all about. I would love for you to come on my bill as a a co-sponsor. So I took the descriptions of my resolution to the House floor. I got at least 80 of my nearest and dearest friends on the House floor to say, yes, this is a great idea. I will be a co-sponsor. And I also took the bill when I was on the House floor to Steny Hoyer, who's the majority leader. And Steny looked at the bill, and he looked up at me, he said, I want to get this to the floor next week. That was pretty surprising. It usually takes far more than two weeks to get a bill from introduction to the House floor. But 
he understood how important this was. And by, by the end of the week, we had over 130 co-sponsors. First thing was to talk about the bill in the Democratic caucus. We have a meeting of all the Democrats every the beginning of every week where we talk about what's coming up on the floor. People get to talk about their bills. That, I think, happened on a Tuesday, and then the bill was going to be brought to the House floor on a Thursday. For me, I think it's just really important that we're having this conversation about how all of this works, how people who are also the new faces who are changing the conversation on the Hill can innovate and change things. And I think that's incredibly important. I think a lot, too, about just the power of communication, what it means to put an idea forth in a resolution. A lot of times you'll hear people say, well, it's not worthy of airing X idea or Y idea if we can't win it the first time. And what I think is important is putting it out there using that platform, getting people talking about it, creating a model that other people in other states with other situations and other circumstances can advance. And I think what you're saying too, and what Representative Manning is doing is calling their bluff. You know, she's not letting it go along so far to the point where we lose Griswold, which is the case in 1965 that that allowed married people to get contraception legally. She's saying, now we're calling your bluff. We know this is what you're after and we're going to act. We're going to act to affirmatively and proactively save this long held human right. It's bringing the invisible conversation to the visible and it's bringing it out loud. It's so important. I mean, I've heard people say, I mean, and Kate, you've probably heard this a lot. You've probably heard it more than I have. You know, I think you know where I'm going. People used to say to us about the Equal Rights Amendment that we shouldn't continue to bother to do that, that work. That, yeah, we're not in the Constitution, but we just need to go in and each state create laws that don't call themselves ERAs that give us the things that the ERA will give. And now I hope nobody comes with that flimsy, raggedy argument anymore now that <laughs> they've seen that row has been snatched from us, right? Because, But I heard like smart people who had powerful positions in progressive spaces saying that, that they would say, oh, well, the focus really shouldn't be on this. It should just be on creating this and calling it something different somewhere else. Whereas what I like about this resolution is it's saying, no, this is this is important for us to assert, to uphold, to amplify, to make visible, to discuss. And and that takes on its own power. And it makes a difference. It makes a difference. You know, she's showing that it does make a difference, that we don't just need women in office, that we need pro-choice women. We need feminist women who are going to act on those values. And creating these resolutions and these bills is a big first step. But part of the strategy also needs to center on actually getting them passed. So before Representative Manning brought the bill to the floor, she presented it at the Democratic caucus. You took it to the Democratic caucus. Tell me a little bit about what that's like. What sounds like the purpose of that meeting is sort of to set the agenda for the week. What was it like when you were talking this bill up telling the the other Democrats in the House that this was coming onto the floor. It gave me an opportunity to talk about why I thought the bill was important, why I believe there's a threat to 
people's right to use birth control. I talked a little bit about what the reaction of Republicans had been because this bill went for discussion in the Energy and Commerce Committee and it went, had to go before the Rules Committee. And I was frankly shocked by how vehement the objections to the bill were because I thought they were nonsensical. It was primarily Republican women who were voicing opposition to this bill. And one of them in the discussion with the Energy and Commerce Committee members declared that my bill is a Trojan horse to get at abortion, which makes absolutely no sense. But I wanted people to be prepared when the bill was brought to the House floor that there wouldn't be just a unanimous vote, everybody in favor, which is what there should have been. It seemed like when you described this to me at the time um, or, you know, right after, it seemed like there was a lot of sort of positive energy that um, members had, particularly older members, perhaps, who've been in the House for a long time, excitement that this was happening, that it felt like the Democrats were a little bit more on the offensive. Absolutely. By the way, it was very interesting. At the press conference, and this is in a pretty formal press room, and there's lots of members of the press in the room, there were almost no questions asked about my bill. It was as if everyone in the press was thinking, well, of course, women should have the right to use contraception. And then, of course, the next day, the bill was brought to the floor. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Our listeners know that the attack on abortion and other forms of reproductive care is devastating to so many people in so many ways. Sometimes it's hard to know what you can do to help. Trust me, I get it. But our sponsor, ActBlue, makes it easy to take action. ActBlue's online fundraising platform is seamless and secure, which is why they're trusted by millions of grassroots donors who are driving the change they want to see. At wondermedianetwork.com donate, you can give directly to reproductive justice groups and abortion funds in just a few clicks. So head to wondermedianetwork.com donate to find reproductive justice groups you can support today. That's wondermedianetwork.com donate. Okay, so Representative Manning, a congressional freshman, has introduced a bill that codifies the right to birth control. It's a pretty straightforward bill, honestly. Should be a no-brainer. People should have access to the full spectrum of contraception, and if they're denied that right, they can bring a case against a state or a government official. She's gotten over 100 co-sponsors. She's presented the bill at the Democratic Caucus, and now she's brought the bill to the floor. So the bill is brought to the floor, and what happens? So the first thing that happens is... Chairman Pallone is the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee. And since his committee has jurisdiction, he was the first one to speak on the bill. And then the ranking member, um, I think her name is Kathy Morris Rogers, spoke against the bill. She was leading the charge against the bill on the Republican side. And she said such awful things about the bill. She said it was poorly drafted. She again repeated her claim that this was a Trojan horse to try to get at abortion. Congress is getting ready to vote. And then at the last minute, there's a flurry of activity. One of the Republican women got up and said she was introducing her own bill and it would be a clean bill to protect 
the right to use birth control. But they all kept talking about only about oral birth control pills. None of them were talking about the full range of birth control options that are available to women. And one of the options that they, they specifically would not mention was the IUD. Now, one of the older Republicans who was a doctor started talking about how dangerous IUDs were, and he mentioned the Dalcon Shield. And many, many years ago, when I was actually a third-year law student working in a summer job, I represent. I worked at a at a law firm that had some cases that were brought by people who had used Dalcon Shields and had terrible injuries. The Dalcon Shield was a particular kind of IUD that had a filamented tail, and it it did cause problems. But the Dalcon Shield has been off the market for probably 30 years. You suspect that these are the kinds of conversations happening on the Hill, but to hear it laid out like this is just maddening. (laughs) Have you ever seen Veep? That's basically a documentary. (laughs) The wildest (laughs) stuff happens in Congress all the time, and people have no idea. Like, what you see in public and what you see clips of actually making it to the news is a tiny fraction of the absolute bananas bonkers things that happen in U.S. House of Representatives. (laughs) When the vote started... One of the Republicans who I am friendly with came over and said to me, Kathy, I I, want to vote for your bill, but I don't understand. My colleagues are telling me it does all these terrible things. It's going to cause all these women to have to have abortions. And I said, it doesn't cause any. I don't know what they're talking about. You ought to be supporting this bill. You have two daughters. You're going to have to explain to them someday why you voted against the right to use birth control. And in the end, he kind of smiled and said, well, I'm really sorry. I hate to vote against you, but I'm going to have to vote no, which I thought was just ridiculous. Then one of my colleagues said to my staffer, can I get the text of the bill? And Ashley gave her the text and she went running out of the room. And a minute later, I I was watching the board to see if we got any Republicans voting with us. And all of a sudden I saw Liz Cheney voted yes in favor of the bill. And I said, oh, my gosh, Liz Cheney just voted for this bill. And the friend who had asked for the text came running back in and she said, yes, she she had been told that this would force religious groups or religious hospitals to provide uh, birth control against their religious beliefs. And she wanted to see the text of the bill to find out was were these rumors true. And when I showed her the text of the bill, she realized that's not true at all. So we did get eight Republicans who voted with us. I was a little bit surprised that more of them weren't willing to vote to protect the right to use birth control, but they were spreading a lot of rumors to to, um, cause, uh, cause their fellow members to vote against the bill, and I think it was a big mistake. So in a surprising bit of good news, the right to contraception bill passed in the House. It even got some Republican support. I think it's important here to say that this whole situation is really rare. A bill sponsored by a freshman about reproductive health passing this quickly. Then the bill was introduced in the Senate by Senators Markey and Duckworth. And spoiler alert, on July 27th, it was struck down. Now, in order to pass, it'll need 60 votes to get past the filibuster. But this is what I also hope that their constituents are going to get upset about. 
because, you know, the people who aren't going to ride with us on row, although they should, who are going to ride with us because of this, there was, again, TikTok, I'm on it too much. There was a woman who was just saying, you know, (laughs) I'm married, white woman, you know, X number of children. I, you know, have this family, cishet, nuclear family. And I just don't want to be a ducker, was what I saw her say in a comment section. (laughs) And that really struck me, right? Because it was was an interesting thing that, you know, she was just kind of saying they're not. So she said, I don't feel represented. They aren't thinking about us. That she wasn't all that political, but that being able to have the right to not have to have 19 and counting children was something that was firing her up to speak out. And um, I just felt really sort of intrigued by that to say, oh, this is what this is what it took for you to have a point of view. But I'm cool with this because maybe these are people, too, who they're going to hear from and are going to say, stop derailing. This actually affects us. Um, because there are a lot of people who do have some nuanced differences in view around contraception and different kinds of contraception. And I think in a society where we don't have a lot of time and respect for nuance, the nuances start coming out when they start affecting people. It's just like, it's moving at such a rapid pace. Oh wait, we're, we're fighting for contraceptives in Congress and it's been blocked in the Senate. You know what I mean? Like, we the pace at which they are absolutely demolishing long-held rights and customs and societal norms is troubling and it's ironic because of course we are accused of the same thing next week on ordinary equality there has to be district attorneys that are willing to say no that's not the right thing to do for my community And I won't do that. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production. This episode was produced by Maddie Foley and Sarah Schleed. Our editor is Lindsay Cradwell. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Big thanks to our sponsor, ActBlue.